It was so good. It was so school ground. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I am, <laughs> whatever. Sorry. <laughs> that fell flat. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cut that whole bit. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's called the Podcast What Tennis Shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,795 movies on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean and I am here with my two co-hosts, Bob and Rob. And Rob, I want you to tell me how you're doing, but I want you to do it very, very fast. Do you know why? Uh... No. Why? Because our episodes are too long. We record <laughs> way too long, and it is killing me right. trying to edit those three-hour conversations down to a 90-minute episode. Okay. Uh, so I'm just going to tell you right now, I started a timer. <laughs> I have a 30-minute timer on. 30-minute. And that timer is going to go three times. We are going to record for 90 minutes, and then we are going to stop. Oh, my God. Okay. And if we do not get to the end of the episode... People aren't going to know our ranking, and they won't know how the movie ends. So you need to do this fast. How are you doing, Robbie? Good. Next. How are you doing, Bobby? Great. Next. Robbie, what are you drinking tonight, Robbie? Uh, I I am doing a dry January, so I have just some bitters and some soda. Wait, you're drinking bitters and soda, but no alcohol? Yeah. Interesting. So it's like a it's like a Virgin Charlie. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's a Virgin Charlie, not a Martin. No, I'm I'm doing the uh, Chris O'Donnell, he, D'Artagnan. He's too he's too young to drink. So does does he get a, another joke for that D'Artagnan one? That's pretty good. Uh, all right. I mean, I'll take it. I didn't think it was a drink. I just but all right. Well, you you're starting at one again, so we'll put you at one. <laughs> Thank you. New year, new tally. <laughs> new year, new tally. <laughs> we'll see if you can get to five again by the end of the year. We we got we got to record the cocktail episode. I think Sean, you wanted to do a drinking game to that, so I'm gonna break the. Dry January for our cocktail drinking game. I think we need some audience feedback. I, I don't know. know if we have an audience. We need to first get an audience, and then we need the audience to create a drinking game for us. So, listeners, if you hear this episode, and we have not yet recorded our episode for cocktail, we want to do a drinking game where we have to take a drink every time during the recording of the episode. We do something very podcast war tennis shoesy. Yep. And uh, we're going to see how well that goes. We're going to get totally smashed on Gordon Bombay's. So <laughs> we're going to put it out to the audience. We're going to get somebody else to give us the rules of this drinking game, I think. We'll find somebody to do it. To be clear, two-thirds of the hosting group will get drunk on Gordon Go- Bombay's. One will just watch and record as always. <laughs> Were you about to say Gordon Gone Bay's? <laughs> that, that's, that's what you guys will be by the end of the episode. Yeah, exactly. Well, somebody, somebody has to turn off the recording <laughs> after Rob and I black out. Before we get to our episode for today, though, we do have our regular reoccurring segment. Robbie, what's it called? Uh, did anybody write a review this week? Let's take a look. Let's take a peek. Did anybody write a review this week? Ding! Uh, I'm just going to it now. I went on to three other podcasts besides our own on the Apple podcast. So uh, I got I was like, yeah, there's a bunch. Uh, none of them for ours. Uh, no, there's new. None. No new ones. We're good. 
Excellent. Good. That's just what I wanted to hear. We're right on schedule. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, audience. This time and this time only, it's a good thing that all of you have yet to answer my cries and my pleading, pleading voice every single week. Man of War, the band, they wrote a review. It was really nice of them. Well, we, we sent them their flowers. <laughs> I've, I've been listening to Gloves of Metal like nonstop since. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Glad one of us is following through. All right. Well, we don't even have time to play the reprise of the theme song, so I'm just going to skip it. Normally, it would go, somebody wrote a review this week. <laughs> Ding. But we don't have time for that. We're going straight into our regular reoccurring segment, The Show. And that show is about The Three Musketeers. Two, no, not 2000, 1993's The Three Musketeers. Is it three or four? Walt Disney's, it's three? All right, three. Can I write down three? I have three. I am B. Anything I say can be false because literally all of my research and notes for this movie involve me going, oh. Yep, that's oh. fair. So I, I don't I don't stand behind anything. Do they only release these movies except for uh, the Paul W.S. Anderson version, which was released in 2011? All of the, the Three Musketeers movies were made in 1973, 1993, 2023. Like they could only release them in years that had a three in them. Yeah, of course. You know, you know why. It's like the monster from It. <laughs> it only comes back every 30 years. <laughs> every 20 years, the monster called the Three Musketeers crawls out of the sewer and subjects us to another terrible movie. Yeah. I'm oddly interested in the French Three Musketeers movies that are coming out this year only because uh, they're, they've got Ava Green and Vincent Cassell. And I'm I'm a big Vincent Cassell fan, so I'm like, I'm, I'm morbidly interested. Morbidly? Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's that's a severe adjective that you're using. Yeah. You know what? I got to say, this is the only adaptation of The Three Musketeers that I've seen, is this 1993 Walt Disney version. I never saw the Salkind adaptation from the 70s, even though it's extremely famous uh, for one very important reason. Robbie, do you know why that is? Got uh, Oliver Reed in it? I have no idea. It's the predicate for the Salkind clause in... Um, Actors' contracts, because what happened was they shot The Three Musketeers and they were intending it to be a four-hour movie with an intermission. And they ran over budget and behind schedule. And they said, why don't we just release the first half, oh, June Part 1 style. Gotcha. And then we'll release the second half next year. And so they released The Three Musketeers. And then the next year they released The Four Musketeers. But they only paid all the actors once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. And... The actors were very mad about that because they got two <laughs> movies out of them for the price of one because both were actually quite successful. And they used that money, poured it into Superman 1 and 2 to try to do the exact same thing again. That was uh, The Hobbit, right? They had to renegotiate it? Before then, they could just do whatever they want. Producers could be like, yeah, we're we're actually just releasing it 10 minutes at a time. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of 10 minutes at a time, we are 10 minutes in the recording, Sean. We got to pick it up. Let's go. <laughs> We have a good pace, though. I feel okay. like I can I can tone it back a little bit. All right. I've been speeding a bit. We're 10 minutes in and we're already talking about the movie that is better than our usual 30 to 40 minute mark on every other episode. Yeah. But now we're talking about the 1993 Three Musketeers adaptation of the Alexandre Dumas book published in 1844. It's set between the years 1625 to 1628. It's set in for, over course of three years. The movie isn't. The book is. Okay, I got you. Sorry, because this movie takes place over the course of a weekend, right? Oh, it takes place over like a day and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's like one night in there. 
It's it's a road trip to Calais. Yeah, and back. And then they come back. It's basically Fury Road set in <laughs> 17th century France. That's true. <laughs> okay, now you're making me want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty sweet. Un- unfortunately, that's not what this is. No. I'm overselling it. Audience, I'm overselling it. It's directed by Stephen Herrick, who directed the first Mighty Ducks movie, not D2. Nope. Robbie's favorite. Yep, the best. But D1, which we did not see, The Mighty Duck, which we have not yet covered. Uh, he then went on to direct the live-action 101 Dalmatians film. Not 101 Dalmatians 2, which was <laughs> actually mean- done by Kevin Lima. Really? Who we just talked about with the Goofy movie. I like how you called it 101 Dalmatians 2 and not 102 Dalmatians, the actual title. Uh, he also directed Mr. Holland's Opus, that grand smash of 1995, apparently. Yeah, the, the one that my parents took me to. Uh, also childhood favorite of mine, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Hell yeah. Oh, how did I, how did I leave that out? I guess I only wrote down his Disney ones, but yes, he wrote Bill and Ted, or he directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is an excellent adventure. This was written by David Lowry. The name sticks out at me when I say it out loud. David Lowry. Where have I heard that name before? I Wikipedia'd it. He wrote Star Trek V. Mm. I'm not sure that's where I know the name from, but that's not a good pedigree. He also wrote Tom and Huck. Nice. The second of the two Tom Sawyer Disney movies. Um, I don't like this guy. I've never met him, but <laughs> he's he grates on me. Uh I've just decided I don't like him. I think I could tell you where it's from. It's from uh, Bad Boys because uh, Martin Lawrence does that whole bit where he keeps saying, I'm Mike Lowry over and over again. And that name probably stuck in your head all these all these years. Yeah, I'm sure that's it, Rob. No, that's it. All right. That's it. That's why I know Did him. you read about the lawsuit that actually involved David Lowry and Disney in Columbia before, while the film was in pre-production? I briefly did. Again, all of my research for this involved me going, oh... <laughs> So I kind of know what you're talking about, but why don't you tell us, Bob? Well, it says here that in um, 1992, actually three separate film studios went into three separate productions of The Three Musketeers. So you had Disney doing their version, uh, Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures, which is interesting because that's before the Columbia TriStar merger. Um, But it said that Disney purchased a screenplay from David Lowry for $650,000 after he'd already been hired to write a screenplay for the Columbia adaptation. And they sued Disney, claiming that they took their intellectual property and Disney just gave them a bunch of money. It was like, look, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> and we got this movie instead, which like really, I which, think, yeah, I think we're going to say the same thing. Just finish my sentence. There's two things I would say to that. The first is that they clearly did steal their intellectual property. If, yes. If Sony hired David Lowry to write this movie and then David Lowry sold it twice to two different people. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, David Lowry. Number two, Disney overpaid twice for this because yeah. like, you pay $650,000 for this, and then you get an out by having the guy who wrote it for you have a breach of contract, and you then cover cover for him? Yeah. Like, what are you doing, Disney? This was your out. You could have not made this movie. <laughs> and to them, it was worth it. And also, I also read, too, but it, apparently they they had actually they had high expectations for this movie. They said that it, it tested really well with test audiences, and they said, oh, how can we possibly lose? And the answer is the rest of this film. Who do you think was in the test audience? Do you think it was one of those those friends and family test audiences? Like it was just 
members of the Estevez family? It was everyone's mom. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was just a bunch of moms, and they were like, oh, we got Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, that cute boy, Chris O'Donnell. Oh, I thought you were <laughs> suggesting it was just the cast's mom. No, no, no. And I was about to say, like, that makes sense, because this movie really feels like high schoolers putting on fake mustaches and pretending to be Frenchmen. <laughs> and their moms show up, and they're like, good job, Kiefer. Good job. That was really good. Okay, now, to, to, to be fair, Kiefer actually does do a good job in this movie. He's, like, the only one that kind of gives a shit. I mean, I want to say Oliver Platt does a good job, but he doesn't give a shit. He knows what movie he's in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> that was sincere. <laughs> we got to actually get into the bulk of the movie here, and we are talking about The Three Musketeers, the movie that dares to ask the question... What if the Pirates of the Caribbean was terrible? Is that what you got out of this? You thought it was Pirates of the Caribbean? It's very Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, like, watching it, it's a swashbuckling adventure with, like, winking to the camera and yep. weird mustaches. And uh, <laughs> none of it works. One aspect of this film works. Oh, yeah. Well, that aspect is a gentleman named Tim Curry. He certainly was not the worst element of this film, but I would have liked to have seen him chew more scenery. You know what Tim Curry would have said to you uh, there? He would have said, that could be arranged. <laughs> okay, now you're doing the Tim Curry impression at the end. Just, just, just oh, good. You saved me because I've been practicing. You have been? And it hasn't been going well. No? I have been. But I think that speaks to the fact that Tim Curry not giving a shit is still the standout performance in this garbage film. That him just being like, ah, whatever. Yeah, no, I'll agree with that. Like, he, he's probably the best performance, but it's it's very by the numbers. He's showing up and he is he's earning the paycheck. But he's doing the minimum amount that he feels he can do to earn a paycheck, which is still more than any other actor. I, and I would say it is like considerably more than Charlie Sheen, who is in this movie by name only. <laughs> Actor by name only? <laughs> Do you think he remembers being in this film? No. no. So I was reading IMDb trivia, and uh, and all the actors uh, had to, not all of them, but most of them had to do the six-week like fencing and horse riding boot camp. And Charlie Sheen was too busy filming Hot Shots Part Duh to, uh, to participate in that. Like, Charlie was checked out before they even started. Isn't Kiefer Sutherland in Hot... Sh oh, Hot Shots Part Two, not Young Guns. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. you were saying Young Guns 2, which is Kiefer Sutherland and Emilio Estevez, yeah. not Carlos Estevez. Yeah. Hot Shots Part Two is what they had to wait for? Yeah. The chicken bow and arrow movie? <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't do any of the, like, the fencing rehearsal, and yet he still got first build. Even if he had shown up, he's not doing fencing rehearsal. Come on. We're talking about Charlie Sheen here. Look, look, look at his performance in the movie. He, he doesn't even show up. Like, that could be anybody wearing that fake goatee. Good job, Charlie. Good job. Good job. <laughs> um, before before we get the credits, though, uh, do you guys see the title card for Walt Disney Studios or pictures or whatever it is? Maybe not. What are you referring to? Uh, it's just, like, a dark blue lettering on a black background that says, like, Walt Disney Pictures. It's not anything it's the only version of oh, this yeah. title that i've ever seen i've never seen them reuse it i mean probably i have but I, I don't know it seemed like it was like we are not doing a disney movie yeah it was their attempt to be epic they didn't want to do the um yeah the castle intro yeah because they wanted this to be like a blockbuster four quadrant yeah you know you bring your parents you bring your dad you bring your mom 25 year old men show <laughs> up and they're like this is a classy movie that's because they really wanted this to be robin hood prince of thieves yeah they really sure. did 
Yeah. So t- you've already started us, Rob. Tell me how this movie begins. <laughs> well, we get Charlie Sheen build first, and then we get Chrissy O'D. Uh, as number three. I thought that was strange, but again, it was Kiefer Sutherland and Chris O'Donnell, and then I think Oliver Platt? I'm not sure. Chris O'Donnell must have had a pretty good uh, agent at the time. Chris O'Donnell had already done Scent of a Woman, I oh, think, right? Oh, right. That's how he, yes. He was, like, nominated for a Golden Globe. I don't know if he got an Oscar <laughs> nom, but I think he got a Golden Globe nom for Scent <laughs> of a Woman. I've never seen that movie, but all I could picture is from this film and Batman and Robin... <laughs> And getting nominated for an award does not go hand in hand with these two performances. I think I read he did get nominated for like an equivalent of a Razzie for this performance. Oh, well-deserved. Well-deserved. Yeah. 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 I have a note here that says, is Chris O'Donnell a movie star just because of his eyes? Because as far as I can tell, like, I didn't understand a thing he was doing. But he's got some piercing blue eyes. What is with you and piercing blue eyes? I don't know. You spoke about the oh, uh, did. kid from Adventures in Bullwhip Griffin. I know I did. piercing blue eyes. I don't know, man. They they, know. they photograph pretty well, let me just say. Is this intentionally just a thing where you pronounce actors' names wrong all the time now? What do you mean? It's Chris O'Donnell. What did I say? You've been saying Chris O'Donnell the whole time with a D. <laughs> uh, no, I've I just been mispronouncing it. Because I'm a fool. Um, uh... It, this movie starts with a giant fire tunnel, and we get uh, Tim Curry doing his best Satan impression in a red cloak riding on a boat down a fire tunnel. When I said there was n- that nothing about this movie works, uh, it was an overstatement. I think this intro works. This intro is ridiculous. It's insane. Yes. But I, I I dug the shit out of it. <laughs> it's Tim Curry riding down like a fucking river of lava. Yeah. Wearing in a armor. fire tunnel underground, <laughs> going to his yeah. torture, you know, chamber. Yeah. And and Sean, Sean, later in the movie, we find out that he has a staircase to it uh, that's accessible from the <laughs> courtyard. So he was doing this entire intro for dramatic effect for himself. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was arguing with Rob about this because we, we watched the film together the first time. And he was like, you could have taken the stairs the whole time. And I was like, Rob, you park in the parking lot of your condo and you have option of walk to the door <laughs> or take fire pit under your condo into your condo which one are you doing uh you're right it's the fire tunnel uh anyway i dug the shit out of the fire tunnel and i was kind of hoping that was going to be the vibe of the whole movie just tim curry like boating around on lava laughing evilly and then stabbing people but uh it's it's not Unfortunately. Uh, I think it's shot kind of cool. I I don't think Stephen Herrick necessarily does a good job with the whole piece because, like, none of the character work really lands. The action sequences are dull. But I like some of the cinematography and production design of the film. And I think a lot of that, again, comes through really well during this intro because it's just dark shadows and fire. And it's it's lit with this kind of chiaroscuro effect with like very deep blacks and everyone mm-hmm. is like half in shadow. And, you know, you're only seeing half of anyone's face at a time. A lot of the movies lit like that. And I like it quite a bit. I wish what was happening was better. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Bobby, what is your thoughts about this opening? Other than it's badass with a lake of fire and that's how you want to get to your con. <laughs> it was, it, again, it does set this like really dark and sinister tone for this movie that yeah. doesn't does not line up for the rest of the film. I mean, it, you're like, okay, yeah, Tim Curry's the villain. I mean, he's Tim Curry. It's the 90s. Of course, he's the villain. And you get uh, you get the introduction of uh, Michael Wincox as uh, the fanciest, fanciest dandy boy with a sword and a feather in his hat. He, he's the fanciest man in the film. He's got, like, sequins on his shirt um, and an eye patch, and he's all dressed in black. Hey, I, I have a confession to make, and this confession 
makes me look very dumb. And so I'm going to give my word to both of you right now that I will keep it in the episode, even though it makes me look extremely dumb. And here's the confession. While I was watching this movie, because I was hating it so much, I was also just Wikipedia and stuff to try to take some notes just to save myself some time. And I saw that Paul McGann plays two roles in the film. He plays the character of Gerard, who is the one who's chasing D'Artagnan across France. D'Artagnan! Fuck that. D'Artagnan! Oh, the the Earl of Lemon Grab. (laughs) Yes. And then he also plays a character called Jessic. And I became momentarily confused. And by momentarily, I mean through most of the movie. And thought Jessic was the leader of the captain of the guard. Michael Wincox? And you thought he was- Michael Wincox's character. (laughs) And I was like, I- how is Paul McGann doing this? And for most of the movie, he I was his- I was like, how is Paul McGann doing this? I was like, he's the most amazing actor. You thought he was he was doing this like like uh, I smoke three packs of cigarettes in my sleep. And then and then the D'Artagnan! I thought he was doing the voice and somehow looked totally different. Now, keep in mind, Michael Wincott's character has an eye patch and a big scar and a beard. So, like, there's a lot going on on his face. So, you know, maybe (laughs) I could be like, maybe these are prosthetics. But somehow I was like, how did I not know Paul McGann was this amazing character actor who could just bust out all of these totally different character voices. You know, this is a Jim Cummings right here. And it was basically after the movie was over that I realized that was Michael Wincott. <laughs> Bobby, what happens next after we after that badass opening? How did you think that was Paul McGann? I'm just looking at photos of him now. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is embarrassing for me, okay? I acknowledge how dumb that statement was, but I'm... I legitimately thought it was somehow Paul McGann was doing the most amazing dual performance of all time. And they put like <laughs> okay. they put like white makeup on him to look pale. So I somehow I thought he was doing both roles. All right. I thought that's what I read. And then the whole movie, I'm just like, how is that possible? What am I want? You know, like it, it, it's um, Colin Farrell as the Penguin, where you're watching it and you're like, how is that Colin Farrell? I'm watching this and I'm like, how is this Paul McGann? And then at the end, I'm like, oh, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm an idiot because <laughs> it's not. <laughs> After being treated to what seems to be a really fun intro that you think is going to set the tone of this movie and being like, Michael Wincott and Tim Curry in a movie and they're both the villains, how could we possibly lose? You are introduced to Chris O'Donnell, who sucks. That's my first <laughs> note, is that Chris O'Donnell sucks. <laughs> yes, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that captures the review. Um... Until this movie, I never had any passionate negative thoughts about Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> I have seen Scent of a Woman. He's fine in it. I don't even mind him in Batman Forever. I mean, like, I, I saw that as a kid, and so, like, I have twisted rose-colored memories of it. But, man, is he bad in this movie. He's fucking terrible. He's so terrible. He's, re- he's really, really – it's, like, to the point that he makes everyone around him look better. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Like, Charlie Sheen has a performance in comparison. Yeah. That, like, that, that is the only way to call Charlie Sheen's, like, note he left on set or performance. <laughs> <laughs> the broom wearing a... Sh- the broom wearing a Charlie Sheen mask that is Charlie Sheen? Yeah. Okay, I gotta... I, I just gotta tell you guys, the first alarm went I off. I know, I just saw. Yeah. Okay. 30 minutes. We're starting it again. We're one-third of the way Look, through. We're, we're at the second scene. Chris O'Donnell is gonna have a duel because... 
Uh, he apparently slept with this dude's brother. Did not slept, brother, slept with his sister. Yeah, sorry, sister. But he has so many brothers. I'm not sure. I mean, they're kind of vague about what they're suggesting. It could just be that this woman kissed him. Yeah. I don't really know. But it was some sort of romantic promiscuous action that has sullied the reputation of actual Paul McGann, not that fake Paul McGann. (laughs) And so he's dueling Chris O'Donnell and Chris O'Donnell beats him in a duel. And then I'm pretty sure Chris O'Donnell was about to kill this man. 100% he was going to murder him. What? That's how you introduce your protagonist? He's cavalier with life and death, as we learn very quickly. Yeah, he's stopped because this guy's brother shows up and so he runs. But he was was totally going to stab this man through the throat. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then just laugh about it. He's not a good guy. Chris O'Donnell is a very bad person in this movie. I think we're supposed to lead to believe that that was just the time. That's what they're trying to get across as people just had duels always. (sighs) You know... As much as I hate to admit it, I feel like David Lowry really should have read Save the Cat or watched Blank Check at the very least. Because Chris O'Donnell, the movie starts and he's just like, I want to be a musketeer as if he's Guybrush Threepwood. He has no arc. Like, we don't know anything about this guy. He's like on his way to Paris to become a musketeer. Yeah. We vaguely know that his father used to be a musketeer. Haven't you ever heard of a hero's journey, David Lowry? Like, come on, give us something here. Why? Why does he want anything? Who is he? What is What is this? He was about to kill this man? I'm pretty sure he's a psychopath. Like, why are we following this guy as the protagonist? We know that he's charming and the ladies love him and he's good with a sword. What more do you want from a 90s Disney movie that's geared towards men but and their moms? Based on Chris O'Donnell's performance, we don't get any of that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's the point, though. That's what they were going for. And later on, he takes off his shirt. And so then we're like, okay, I guess that's why the women kiss him. It, it was kind of funny because we were kind of like after the movie, like, because uh, my wife watched it as well. And we were saying, like, like were there any other, like, 90s hunks? And, like, I didn't realize this was, like, kind of a Bruce Willis situation where a bunch of other actors had turned it down. And, like, my joking first guess was, like, wasn't well, Brendan Fraser, like, just done Encino Man? Like, wasn't he, like, hot in the early 90s? And I read that Brendan Fraser was actually the first choice, and he was smart enough to be like, no, no, I'm not being in that movie. <laughs> Apparently, um, they wanted um, Carrie Ells to be uh, one of the musketeers as well. Yeah, I read that he was actually cast yeah. and then left during pre-production. I wasn't aware of what role he was cast for. I assume it would have been Charlie Sheen's role. He wouldn't have been a good fit for Porkins. <laughs> and Porthos. I don't think he would have been Athos, Keith or Sutherland. It would have made most sense for Aramis. I think it's that Oliver Platt had actually been, uh, he was actually considered for the TriStar adaptation. Yeah, exactly. He was going to be Porthos in the other one. Yeah. They're just sniping each other's scripts and actors. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver Platt in Flatliners, I feel like that was the Jack Black from High Fidelity moment. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Okay. You know, he has a supporting comic role that so captures the personality of a movie. Like, when you walk out of Flatliners, you're like, Oliver Platt, yeah. Hmm. After that, every single production studio was like, we need to get Oliver Platt as, like, the supporting comic character in our movie. And so I think he was very in demand for a couple of years. Um, Back to the movie. Uh, So the brothers show up and there's a horse chase and there's a bunch of fighty-fighty action-action running through the villages. There's some good stunts and and yeah, you can see that it's, like, not Chris O'Donnell standing on that horse. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. (laughs) What I found so funny was they give Chris O'Donnell the biggest foppiest hat you could possibly imagine to cover up his face so that 
you know, they could just have the stunt double do all of it <laughs> wearing this big, comically oversized sombrero that covers up his head. Yeah. And then they put a giant feather on it, too, to obscure it even more. He's like, uh oh, there's a jump coming. Better pull this hat down over my face. One note I have there's, I thought this movie was about three things, but I think it's only about two things. <laughs> The director had the director had two ideas, and that was movies and like different levels and heights. He just said, "I want to shoot boobs, and I want to have people like jump off of things." That's like all he thought of, because like all of the action stops being creative when you just realize they're just jumping up and down from different levels. Now, to be fair, that also could have been the editor on post being like, "This movie has nothing going on. What do we got? Boobs yeah. and." People jumping off things. Cool. That's it. That's what I'm going yes. with. That's what this movie is about. <laughs> Stephen Herrick actually shot a four-hour drama, and they were like, listen, the only thing that works in all of this footage are the breasts and yep. people jumping. I, I don't know how many times I wrote the word boobs down as notes in this movie. There is so much cleavage in this film. It's kind of unnerving. It is by far and away, I think, the horniest Disney film that we've reviewed up until this point. We debated that, but like we said, this movie didn't have a shot with like someone having sex with Tim Curry in the caravan, which Hocus Pocus did. There's a scene where um, Tim Curry just goes up to um, Milady de Winter uh, and just like lifts her robe off of her and then tries to grab her breasts. Yeah. Just just says, yeah. mm, boobs, and just goes honk, honk, honk. Like, that is something that happens in this film. And it's a Disney movie. I will say, a lot of these period pieces, they often just feel like excuses to put women in... Um, yes. Corsets. Very tight corsets. This is no exception. The tightest possible corsets. And so that didn't necessarily surprise me, but <laughs> the one shot that did surprise me is, we're going to jump ahead to it right now, but yeah, there, yeah. the scene where Chris O'Donnell wakes up with Milady de Winter, <laughs> where? and the camera is pointed straight down her top at her yep. cleavage. Yeah. Yep. And the angle is not just oh, it's male gaze, her cleavage is taking up so much of the shot. It's almost like an uh, like an art house shot because like all of the dialogue is off screen. <laughs> like the camera is just lingering on a single object as we have to just <laughs> listen to the scene, except the object- Except for it's her boobs. Is her bust, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to say. I'm, oh. not, I'm not trying to objectify this woman, the movie is. And so I'm sorry. <laughs> that is something that should be said for everybody that was involved in every level of this film. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rebecca de Mornay basically finds Chris O'Donnell unconscious on the road. It's basically the scene for Back to the Future with Marty McFly. She falls off a horse. They find him in the middle of the road, gets hit by a car, and then she takes him back to her bedroom and just undresses him uh, and then decides to get in her underwear beside them. And she's an adult and he's supposed to be a boy. And yeah. And then it's also revealed that she's actually his dad's wife. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, I'm just saying Athos is like a father figure. Oh, I gotcha. Father figure, not not biological father. I gotcha. I know, but I'm trying to connect it to the Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah. All of that was a waste now, Robbie. You've ruined it. We only have 90 minutes and you've ruined two of Keep them. Keep recording for another 45 minutes. Uh, where are we? How far have we gotten into the movie? Uh, he hasn't even arrived to Paris yet. Yeah. Okay, now we're on track for like, we're 10 minutes into the movie, like three minutes into the movie, 42 minutes into the recording. Yep. We need to talk about him going yeah, to Paris. Yeah, he hasn't gone to Paris yet. Because he runs away from Paul McGann. Yep. And then he rides to Paris. He escapes from Paul McGann. Going, D'Artagnan! D'Artagnan! 
He's on the road to Paris, and then he just decides to murder yep. two more people. Seriously. Yeah. Chris O'Donnell is a psychopath in this movie. With a smile on his face, he sees two ladies riding horses, and then he sees two men riding horses behind them and says, I'm going to murder those two dudes. And does. He murders them. And then Julie Delpy rides up, and I'm like, fuck yes, Julie Delpy is going to save this movie. And then she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. It's not her fault. She's only in three scenes, but. And she serves like all of them with Chris O'Donnell. So that's just, whatever talent she's exuding is just being absorbed into Chris O'Donnell. I, uh, I did make a note when she showed up and I said, oh, look, a French person. But she says, what do you think you're doing? And he says, I'm saving you from these bandits that yep. he's just killed. These men <laughs> yeah. he's just killed. And she says, those were clearly our guards. And then he goes, oops. And then she directed to smile flirtatiously yep. at him. After murdering her escort. You can see how the script is setting out something that is impossible to perform because it's insane. Yep. <laughs> this man shows up, murders your escort, and then the script tells you to flirtatiously smile at him. That makes sense. Yeah, no, perfect. Yeah. So at the same time that Chris O'Donnell is heading to Paris, Michael Wincott is disbanding the musketeers. Robbie, tell us about it. We we actually find out what a musketeer is for the people who didn't know, because honestly, I forgot what a musketeer was. They are the uh, secret service to the French uh, king. Uh, they're the king's bodyguards. Um, and Michael Wincott is saying that they are disbanded on the order of Cardinal Richelieu. Uh, because there's going to be a war coming with uh, the Duke of Buckingham, and they need them for the infantry. So the 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 musketeers are like, but we don't want to go to war. We want to help the the French king uh, not die. And then Michael Wincott's like, no, 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 he's going to die. He's he's going to die. Don't worry about it. We're going to send you to the front lines. You're going to die, and the king's going to die. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I don't really understand any of the political machinations in this film uh we can get into it more later because it more it's more specifically relevant for what the fuck they're going through the heads of the three musketeers but just right now i'm curious as to what's going through the heads of the other musketeers because the orders as they have received them yeah is that they are the king's bodyguards and the musketeers are being disbanded and transferred to the army because they're going to war. And they're all upset about this. And the thing is, I don't know whether they're upset because they don't want to go to war or because they suspect bad faith on the part of Cardinal Richelieu. But none of that is really telegraphed. Like, we don't know what they're thinking. Right. You know, we don't know what their position is on all of this. They seem to be upset about yep. it, although they all accept it other than the three musketeers, <laughs> apparently. Although I have questions about that, too. Who get the, They also get name dropped in this scene, which says, uh, so the musketeers are disbanded. And he's like, no, there are three. It's the most ridiculous thing, because I don't I don't know what. Uh, OK, anyway, go on. Oh. <laughs> he's just defeated his camera's turned off but you can hear it in his voice i can see his facial expression oh, so defeated I, I i've known sean for almost 30 years and i can tell you audience this is all sincere yeah so three musketeers have not accepted the transfer of their you know positions to the army i guess they also weren't at the meeting they were not. They weren't there. That's what I'm confused about. I don't understand. That's what I don't get. Like, what are they saying? Where they're like, there are three that are unaccounted for. Like, 
do they know what's going on? I don't understand. They weren't there. So who are these three? They're not guarding the king. That's for sure. They're all pretty much flirting with women, except for um, Beardo McGee. What's his face? <laughs> Keep yourself. Oh, thank you. Athos. <laughs> they all have beards. Of some sort. Well, I mean, he has mo- he has the most beard. He wins the beard competition. Yeah, I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but it's important because he says I've sent out my men to find them and round them up. Yep. And it's like, oh, where are the three musketeers hiding? And the first thing you find out is that Kiefer Sutherland is hiding in the building they were just in at Musketeer headquarters. <laughs> he was hiding yeah. in the building they were just in. It's called Musketeer headquarters. Where are they looking? Not there, clearly. He's not even hiding. He's in the first room. You open the front door, the first thing you see is Kiefer Sutherland sitting there. He was in the room with the flag. Like, he was just standing off in the corner. When when they asked what he wanted to do with the musketeer flag, and Tim Curry goes, burn it. Then he was just standing off to the side. It's perfect. It's it's the last place they would have expected to look. But uh, as uh, Chris O'Donnell rocks up to musketeer headquarters in Paris, we get the one and only instance of the Brian Adams sting and uh, Rod Stewart song in the film before the end credits. So I don't know if we have any American listeners uh, on this podcast, but I don't know if young Canadians will remember this, but in Canada, they tried to make this song a hit because Brian Adams co-wrote it and was one of the singers on it. And they played it on the radio all the time for Canadian content laws. All the time. All the time. I, I mean, they were doing a huge, heavy push with it. Uh, in the credits, the song <laughs> actually gets the built. first credit. <laughs> yeah. It's top build. The I have song that as a note. Built. That, yeah, <laughs> what I, <laughs> the song is top field for the movie. I've never seen that before. And I don't think you'll ever see it again. Honestly, if they made Titanic 2 and Celine Dion saying, My Heart Will Go On Again, uh, it still would not be top <laughs> My Heart build. Will Continue to Go On. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it'll, it'll never happen again. Uh, but they, they, they were tying it in because they're like, Well, we got Sting, Rod Stewart, and Brian Adams, you know, the three musketeers of music. So they. <laughs> They were pushing it really hard. Wait, so of those three, which one is Porkins? Rod Rod Stewart. Stewart. Come on. Really? You don't think Rod Stewart is Aramis? Rod Stewart probably thinks he's Aramis, but he's Porkins. (laughs) Okay, he's Porkins. I actually don't know the difference between Athos or Aramis. I couldn't tell you who was who. Athos is Kiefer Sutherland, and Aramis is Charlie Sheen. I would say that... Uh, Sting takes himself too seriously, so he would probably be Charlie Sheen. Yeah, Sting would be Aramis. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Sting is Aramis. And uh, I guess that by default leaves Brian Adams to be Keith Sutherland. I guess he was still riding off the uh, everything I do, I do it for you high. So like, And they're both Canadian. So There you go. The three musketeers of music. <laughs> the three musketeers of rock. <laughs> but yeah, they, they put that in there. The one little like callback of the chorus. And uh, I remember uh, I was watching with Bobby. I, I just start, sang that line out loud. Bobby was not happy with I wasn't, me. no, I wasn't unhappy with you. I was unhappy because suddenly I remembered the whole song and how much I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> it just all came back to you. Yeah, it all came back to me. The three musketeers of rock were all standing me clear in the face and I couldn't <laughs> avoid them. Kiefer Sutherland is hiding in musketeer headquarters. They'll never find him. Yeah. Oliver Platt is playing cards in the middle of town. They'll never find him. Charlie Sheen is... You you find Charlie Sheen in this movie. I couldn't find him. He's hiding. He could be anywhere. <laughs> They'll never find him. <laughs> 
Chris O'Donnell <laughs> rocks into town and he finds all three in a matter of minutes. Um, and then threatens to kill all of them. So this plot point is from the book. D'Artagnan gets to Paris and meets all of the three musketeers by being challenged or challenging them to a duel, all of which are supposed to happen back to back to back. When they all get there and they realize, oh, we're all supposed to duel this guy over the next 10 minutes, they're so impressed and they're so amused by it that they like befriend him and take him under their wing. That's like the introduction of D'Artagnan to the three musketeers in the book. And conceptually, I know how that's a funny idea. Yeah. The guy rocks into town and he meets the three musketeers one after another and somehow gets challenged to a duel one after another. And then he he's like, okay. And it seems like such an obvious comic idea. And I don't know how it doesn't work at all. I, I can tell you how. Okay. Tell me. It's Chris O'Donnell. But it's also partly the script. Like the whole thing is just, it feels like it just, nobody had a handle on the comic tone they were going no. for. Because this is a joke. Like, this is a comic introduction. You could see this as Pirates of the Caribbean. I can easily see Orlando yeah. Bloom's character being introduced to Pirates of the Caribbean, having like three duels in a row, and it just being funny because Gore Verbinski and Orlando yeah. Bloom could land that joke. I was going to say, there's one bit where Chris O'Donnell remarks on, he speaks out, he goes, oh, three duels in, in one day? And, and like, gives, like, a little, he raises his eyebrow, like, a, a centimeter, half a millimeter, and that's supposed to be the entire reaction. It's an absurd reaction, but not in a funny way. Like, it's just right. viscerally, it makes me viscerally angry, that reaction, because yeah. it makes no fucking sense. It's also because he's the one challenging them. Like, the comic nature, I think, has to be that he keeps being forced into this. You know, right. That they're challenging him to a duel. Either they challenge him or the circumstances require him to challenge it. Like not in these ridiculous, like he like bumps into them and he's like, I challenge you to a duel. And it's like, what is going? Who are you, Chris O'Donnell? You psychopath. You've already murdered so many people today. <laughs> like there's a, there's, a, there's a trail of bodies living into Paris. <laughs> but I was going to say the same thing. I said uh, he killed two people, but he was upset that he didn't get to kill that first guy uh, in the duel. So he wanted to make up for it. His bloodlust is unquenched it plays as disturbing that this psychopath is going to murder everyone in his path um i did write a note here and again we, i watched this like before christmas so uh it's been a while and i wrote this note down i don't know what it's a reference to but I, I i i'm pretty sure unintentionally i wrote it like a chandler bing joke i, I said could he be any more american <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> That's just how I wrote it. Nobody even really tried. I mean, like, I don't really expect them to put on an accent. But the thing is, is that other than Tim Curry, nobody in this movie looks like they've never heard of MTV. Yeah, we're, we're rocking up on two, an hour here. Yeah, just accept it, Sean. It's not happening. It's happening. I'm turning off. I'm turning off this recording if we don't get done in the next 32 minutes. So you better get through this movie. Like this movie did not happen. Neither will we meet our time limit. <laughs> We're going to do it, guys. Come on. We can rise to the occasion. Okay. Just like the Three Musketeers. We get a scene where um, Tim Curry um, creeps on the queen, uh, stares at her chest and licks his lips. I don't know what his lines were, but that's all he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's basically all Tim Curry's character. Every single line is him just lecherously gazing at women. He like He's like staring at her breasts and then goes, mm, and licks his lips. And the queen is just like, fine with it somehow? I don't know. <sighs> it's it's so creepy. Okay, so then they go to have a duel. D'Artagnan and the three musketeers end up having a duel. 
It's the it's the most absurd comic premise, and yet somehow they cannot squeeze a single chuckle out of me. Like I just, it makes me angry how bad yeah. they fumbled this joke. It's like they're going out of their way to be like, no, this is serious. It's going to be a duel. You know, like they're going out of their way to take all the comedy out of this prem- this ridiculous premise. Like this this movie does not does not have a tone. It, this movie does not know what it is. As Rob said, the only person the only person who knows what it is is Oliver Platt. I, I feel like Oliver Platt is just happy to be there. Like, he's just making the most out of it. Maybe, but like, okay, so, but then we actually get an action sequence because then they resist. And so you get the first action sequence yeah. and it's terrible. It's quite it terrible. one of the worst things. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like mediocre LARPing. <laughs> it, okay, we're at, uh, we're at the second half hour. My alarm just went off, so I'm going to restart okay we're in the final half hour they got bob anderson to do the flight choreography and train them and it's unfortunate well i hope he got paid for it because he did not give them anything and he's he's in the movie as well as the sword trainer for the king there is a moment where oliver platt gets in a sword fight with a guy and he goes yeah and then just spins for apparently no reason yep i wrote down like anakin skywalker Porkins seems to think that spinning is a neat trick. Guaranteed 100% that was not in the choreography. That was just Oliver Platt having fun. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Bobby, after this terrible action sequence ends, what happens? Uh, they high five with their swords. Um, it's so <laughs> fucking stupid. <laughs> They do it a few times. At this point, Rob and I began discussing the relationships of characters, and I wrote down uh, Kiefer Sutherland leads, Oliver Platt does machines, Charlie Sheen is cool but rude, <laughs> and Chris O'Donnell is the party dude. That pretty much sums up the relationship between them of the four musketeers at this point. Uh, after the action scene, um, Chris O'Donnell's like, but we gotta be the musketeers, guys! And he's like, wake up, boy, the musketeers are just a dream. And I, and I was like, it's 12.30. The musketeer, musketeers were disbanded, like, at 10 o'clock. It's been, it's been only, like, two and a half hours that the musketeers are no longer a thing, and he's, like, saying it's just a dream. This was the same day. Well, that's also what I want to say. I don't understand what the three musketeers' motivations are. I don't understand. Are they, like, draft dodgers? Is the plot of this movie that yeah. the three musketeers are draft dodgers? Because from their perspective... At this point, well, that's what they're doing. They don't know yet about the plot against the king. Eh, They've just been eh. drafted into the army, and they're like, no? So, like, I, it's, I'm honestly asking, is that supposed to be what their position is at this point? It's because uh, Rochefort, um, Michael Wincott, uh, he was a musketeer, but he was uh, kicked out for con- conduct unbecoming of a musketeer and so he's the one who's giving the orders and is siding with the cardinal so they are i think led to believe that something is amiss they they think that michael wincott got the previous king killed he's not to be trusted so if he's telling us to do this we shouldn't do it i think you are reaching with that one and just filling in the gaps for a script that doesn't have that explanation i think you're filling in the gaps but i will give you i will give you that that does make sense so maybe that is what's intended but i don't think there's enough context in the movie to make that obvious yes yeah. it was very confusing to me yeah that was not a dis- that was not disparaging to rob at all that was just me saying like wow rob put in more thought to that like sentence than they did this whole script <laughs> chris o'donnell gets arrested he is then uh locked yep. up in the fire prison the pit of despair he escapes he escapes he overhears the plot to go to buckingham and kill the king but and doesn't because tim curry 
like any rational person hangs out in his fire pit dungeon. Anybody would. He has, like, that's, like, he's a cardinal, and that's where I think his office is. Like, <laughs> it's led to believe that that's where his office is. You're right, because yeah. he's a cardinal. He's a cardinal. Like, that's an administrative position. Like, a cardinal yeah. is not an honorific. Like, it's not, like, lord, where, like, he just uh-huh. has this title by birth, or he has this title because he owns some land somewhere. Like, there's bureaucratic responsibilities with the Catholic yeah. Church to be a cardinal. He, like, has a desk and a chair in there and a fireplace. It's just... He has forms he has to fill out, but he does right. it in a fire pit. <laughs> he goes to the pit of despair <laughs> to hear the screams of the innocent while the cardinal is, you know, signing the forms. When the Pope comes to visit him, the Pope has to yeah. come to the fire pit. He goes through the fire tunnel. <laughs> 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 to get to <laughs> this is the scene where uh, we are introduced to uh Milady de Winter. Um we get the the boob grab scene and then to accentuate the point of how much boobs are a thing, her boobs specifically, she pulls a knife on Tim Curry and then decides to I'm going to holster this in my breasts. So she just puts the knife down her cleavage. She has one character trait, I guess, because her character was a former prostitute, so they just do nothing but sexualize her. Is that what she did? I didn't even really understand. Uh, he said, I could put you back on the street where I found you. No, but he didn't find her on the street. He He pardoned her from execution. It's implied that she was a prostitute. Maybe. Again, I, you're, you're explaining more of this movie than the movie did. I don't understand any of that. But anyway, Chris O'Donnell overhears the plan. He goes, oh, Tim Curry is planning to conspire with the Duke of Buckingham. You, you put too much acting into that. That is not what Chris O'Donnell said. <laughs> you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do such a bad Chris O'Donnell impression. <laughs> uh, this scene has my favorite, because he tries to escape and he gets caught and he gets brought back to Cardinal Richelieu and... It has my favorite Tim Curry line in the whole movie where he discusses the prospect of, like, here we wanted to become a musketeer, <laughs> and, like, Tim Curry's like, well, I guess we'll never know. Will we? <laughs> Will we? Is the thing he says to him before he executes him, and I really liked it. <laughs> it was so good. And then, can we rush through this movie in 20 minutes? Immediately afterwards, he's taken to be executed, and for some reason, the musketeers are the executioners and have a whole escape plan. I really want to know how they got into that position. Like, we missed the most interesting part of the movie. Like, the Musketeers were up to some amazing hijinks while we were fucking stuck with Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> did you guys notice that they uh, did a costume change on Chris O'Donnell while he was in prison? Stop calling him Chris O'Donnell. Sorry, Chris O'Donnell. I've just probably said it wrong my entire life, and now it's stuck there. <laughs> yeah. So he's already in the pit of despair, right? In the dungeon. And uh, Michael Wincott says to the guard, Take him below. And I'm like, there's a below? There's a lake. How far, like, they're on a river. How far down does this go? Where's the below part of this pit of despair? This is where the Cardinal has his office. Like, he's not at the deepest part. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, 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 he's, yeah. he's above the screams of torment. He sits just above them. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. You get another stupid action sequence where they escape. And I really think that's all that needs to be said about it. Oliver Platt has, like, six lines during the movie and almost all of them are anachronistic inaccuracies terrible it honestly annoyed the shit out of me how little research was done for this movie Uh and i don't want to be too nitpicky but when oliver platt is introduced to chris o'donnell he's mad because chris o'donnell spilled some stuff on his sash and he says this sash was given to me by the queen of america 
And Chris O'Donnell says, there's no Queen of America. And this is 1625. There's no fucking America. Right. Yep. There's no America. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. There are British colonies, which do have a queen. Do you know who the queen of the British colonies are? It's the fucking sister of Louis XIII, the royal family you're sworn to protect, Oliver Platt. Uh-huh. Uh, the next one, he says, is the uh, this sash or cloak or whatever was given to me by the Tsarina of Tokyo. And at that point in time, Tokyo also wasn't a thing. Yep, there was no Tokyo. Again, when they're doing this escape, Oliver Platt pulls out a bottle of what he says is champagne. And he asks people during this uh, carriage chase sequence, would you like some champagne? He goes, champagne? And it's supposed to be funny because while they're all fighting for their lives and escaping, Oliver Platt is going to pour everybody some drinks. But again, there was no champagne in 1625. Sparkling wine was invented about 40 years later in England, and the concept of champagne being a particular type of sparkling wine that is developed in the Champagne region of France didn't exist until the 18th century. Like, this is not a thing. Uh -huh. And then when they get to the bar with Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt, and Charlie Sheen are talking about romancing a woman. And then Charlie Sheen. They're talking about the art of wenching. Okay, I'm, I'm just I'm just going to be perfectly honest. I thought it was amusing that they called it wenching. Um, I didn't find <laughs> I didn't find that line as offensive as just what happens during the scene, which I, was, bothered me quite a bit. But like, I, I thought I thought it was funny to for Oliver Platt to proudly talk about how good he is at wenching. I mean, if that was just the line, I would just laugh at it. During that scene, Charlie Sheen says, "Oh, here's how you wench." Here's how I'm going to show you how to wench. And the way that you wench is you you quote poetry to them. He then quotes Shakespeare to this woman. <laughs> at which point Chris O'Donnell goes, oh, Shakespeare. In 1625, in France, Shakespeare was not translated into French for like another hundred years. This was approximately 10 years after the fucking play was performed. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, I fucking hate this movie. Um, Is that the end of your? That's my rant about all of the anachronisms. I just, I just hated the anachronisms in this movie. It's just so fucking stupid. <laughs> Is this new segment called "Well Actually" with Sean? <laughs> this is called "Well Actually" with Sean. Yeah. In the carriage ride, uh, they they get into the wine, but they also find a box of gold coins. And Charlie Sheen <laughs> tells Chris O'Donnell, Chris O'Donnell. Sorry, Bobby, uh, to uh, to throw it, to redistribute the wealth. And he says, the people are hungry and then throw the throw the money. And I'm like, they're hungry because the king. Yeah. Whose fault is that? Louis the 13th. Exactly. That's who right. Who is yeah. portrayed as a hero in this film. Right. Cardinal Richelieu is mounting a coup. Technically, he's the hero. If you have a problem with the current <laughs> governance of France, Cardinal Richelieu... <laughs> Is the hero yep. of the film. This movie is so fucking dumb. Yep. I hate it so much. It's like, honestly. You I, didn't give a shit about how hard this was going to be to edit. You just didn't want to talk about this movie for two and a half hours. That's why you said I a timer. hate this movie. <laughs> we only have 12 minutes left, Bobby. And you took up like five of it of well, well, actually, with Sean. Yeah, I was about to say, like, you can only talk for like an hour and a half. However, <laughs> I have a seven minute historical inaccuracies bit planned. <laughs> 
I regret nothing. <laughs> they get to what is just a roadside gunpowder depository. Oh, yeah, the, just gunpowder depository that's just there. <laughs> <laughs> they just have a gunpowder depository on the side of the road, and then they decide, the three musketeers decide to blow up and murder probably 20, 30 of uh, people because gunpowder and explosions. People who they worked with, like, a few hours ago. Yeah, yeah keep in mind, all of the musketeers have been transferred into the army, so that's who they just <laughs> killed. Yeah. They just, yep, yeah, killed a bunch of innocent people. Yep. Chris O'Donnell has discovered that a spy is going to send a message from Cardinal Richelieu to the Duke of Buckingham. It is a secret pact to overthrow the government of France. They make their way to Calais to stop this from happening. On the way, bullshit happens. I don't fucking care about any of it. Chris O'Donnell ends up getting captured by Milady de Winter, and there's just lingering shots of her boobs for a very long period of time. We find out that Kiefer Sutherland used to be engaged to Milady de Winter, who's the villain of the piece. He's no longer engaged to her. Why? Because he's a fucking fascist. This movie is nuts because he found out that she was wanted by the state. What does he do to his... Fiance turns her into the state like a fucking communist. Yeah. And he's the hero, apparently. His name for her is Sabine in this movie. And apparently that's never referenced in any uh, of the book. Like the book, she goes by like 10 different monikers. And none of them are Sabine. And none of them are Sabine. So that was just something that they decide to add to the film. I was honestly offended at that plot point. Like whether or not. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. Like the movie sort of just portrays that he has no idea what she did. He's like, I don't know what she did, but she was wanted by the state. So I turned her in and then I regret it. And it's like, of course you fucking regret it, you fascist. Why don't you go join the Nazis? Um, then from your suggestion, Robbie, what she did was she was a prostitute, which makes me even more angry. It was like, that's what she did? At any rate, I fucking hated it. And, uh, whatever, doesn't matter. They catch her. She's going to take Chris O'Donnell on the boat to England from Calais. To fuck him, I think. Well, because she's taking him as a fuck buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So she's on a very strict timeline to get to that boat by midnight, but she still has time to make a pit stop so she can undress this boy in her, I want to say, former house, because then her ex-husband brother shows up at the house looking for them. I don't understand anything that's happening in, no. in any of those scenes, other than she's clearly trying to rape that boy. Um But yep. she takes him with her as a little... Fuck, buddy. Uh, They get on the boat, and then this movie just says, remember that plot point where the three musketeers were secretly the executioners? Let's do that again, because we only have one Let's do it again. plot point. And they do the exact thing again. They they, they do an Indiana Jones-style action sequence, except this time it sucks. Mm-hmm. Not only that, Oliver Platt once again ground pounds people. His only move <laughs> is to get up high and jump down. He gets up to the crow's nest, and then he, like, jumps on them again. <laughs> he spends a lot of time climbing. Like, honestly, Oliver Platt, like, when they're about to get in a fight, he's like, wait, guys, I gotta climb (laughs) so that I can jump on them. Then uh, they capture her and they execute her. They're going to execute her. And then she does the you can't fire me if I quit and jumps off a cliff. But before she does that, she explains to them that Cardinal Richelieu is going to assassinate King Louis on his birthday, which is the information they need to fury road themselves all the way back to where they started. Kiefer Sutherland 
is rightfully so racked with guilt that before she's about to get her head chopped off, he says, wait, and then says, please forgive me, when she should have said, no, fuck you. Uh, but she says, no, I do forgive you, because I guess I'm a bad person. Here's what you need to know, and now I'm going to go kill myself. And now I'm going to jump off a cliff. It's honestly offensive to me because it, it was it, terrible. I don't even think there is a phrase for it. It's like some sort of weird, even more offensive version of fridging a woman. We're like, <laughs> like voluntarily fridge herself because she's like, all I'm here for is to advance the plot and give you grief. Goodbye. <laughs> and then jumps off a cliff. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. It's terrible. Yeah. It's this voluntary fridging. Apparently, this was the first uh, depiction of suicide in a Disney film. They rush back to Paris to stop the king from being assassinated. They get there. There's like a marksman who's going to shoot the king. This is like the complications of this are just like, uh, Cardinal, there's so many opportunities to kill this guy. Like, I don't know why you have to. Anyway, it doesn't he, matter. He, like, and the thing about it is this king's a fucking moron. Like, Cardinal Russia could just push him down the stairs at any time and be like, he tripped. The guy was a fucking idiot. <laughs> and everyone be like, ah, oh, yeah, man. Fuck, that guy was an idiot. Like, we told him. That kid is so pale and, like, he, he honestly looks like he's about to die at any moment. He could have just, like, fucking smothered him with a pillow <laughs> while he slept and just been like, dude never woke up. And everybody would like, tracks. He, he looked like he was on his last legs. Or, or like, waited it out. Like, he probably would have died soon anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He was, malnutrition. A, he was a very malnutrition withered kid. Basically, Tiny Tim was the king of France at the point at that time. Yeah, that was an indoor kid for sure. You guys, we have two minutes and 53 seconds to finish this movie. And here's what I'm going to say. So the three musketeers show up um, on the way to Paris. They like beckon all of the other musketeers by like shooting arrows into random trees. Apparently that works. And all the musketeers just had their shit in hay bales all across France. So we're like, all right, cool. Good thing we stashed these yesterday. Yeah. Even though they burnt their tunics and returned their swords, they just had them. And it's been like 12 hours since they joined the army. It doesn't make any fucking sense, but whatever. They they then summon all of the musketeers so that they can have a giant battle with the Richelieu's men and the musketeers. And they show up, and I cannot believe this for the life of me. Like, I just stopped the movie and just, like, pause and gather my thoughts before I could continue because I couldn't believe that this happened. The assassin is going to shoot the king. Chris O'Donnell has to climb up to the building to the perch where the assassin is, has to jump down to stop the assassin at the exact moment. Levels? It, it is just levels. You're right. It's another levels <laughs> thing. He has to stop the assassin at the exact last moment before the assassin shoots the king. The assassin just barely missed because Chris O'Donnell jumps down just in time. And then the king is whisked away and then all of the musketeers throw off their robes and reveal that they're musketeers and then Kiefer Sutherland, I'm pretty sure it's Kiefer Sutherland, it, it might is. be one of the yes. other ones. He jumps no, up is. and he like summons all of the musketeers and he jumps into frame and you're like, he's gonna say it. He's gonna say it. He's gonna say Avengers Assemble. And then he says, save the king. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He, he says, save the king. And I couldn't fucking <laughs> believe it. I was like, how do you not say all for one, one for all there? How do you not say it? Because they had to say it at the end of the movie when Chris O'Donnell is now going to get help murdering the guy and his brothers from the rest of the musketeers. But that's the dumb time to say it because that was yep. stupid. This is a you dumb, say yeah, it. This is a dumb movie. Uh, all right. 
Everybody, we have 20 seconds to finish the movie. There's a very dumb fight scene that for some reason parallels Star Wars in like three different ways, and I don't understand why, but there's no time to get into it. Anyway, the movie sucks. I rank it very low in my list. Uh, 10 seconds, Robbie. This movie, I'm going to cut Robbie off. It has my favorite line in this scene, which is where Michael Wincott says, I may have been mistaken, and then dies. This is, for me, uh, I think it's number 23 or 24, just below the Shaggy Dog. This movie fucking sucked. It would have been lower if not for the fact that I made the mistake of watching the Paul W.S. Anderson rem version of this movie just as a comparison and that movie is infinitely worse uh boys i saw this a bunch as a kid so it's rose-colored glasses for me i laughed my face off watching this film it's number 12 please don't hate me for fuck's sake what oh my god are we going through another d2 situation rob come on number 12 i understand this it's number 12 Uh, let's it again Again, my list is split into would I watch it again, would I not watch it again? I would watch it again. And then I put it above the films that I would watch before this or, you know. I would not watch it again. In fact, that's why – that's another reason why I wanted us to rush through this because I watched it once and I just was not willing to just do more preparation for this episode. I had a very, very loose understanding of what happened in this film and I'm never going to change that. I can tell it's the truth because suddenly you're talking at a regular pace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you were talking super fast there and all of a sudden he's like, oh, we're done talking about the film? It's like, okay, cool. There wasn't a time limit. I just don't want to talk about this fucking movie anymore. So I have Babes in Toyland at 24 and The Shaggy Dog at 25. And I was trying to think, I was like, is this better than Babes in Toyland? And I was like, no, that's how much I don't like this movie. And then I was like, is this better than Shaggy Dog? And I was like, yes, but Shaggy Dog has a dog driving a car. The same reason why I put Shaggy (laughs) Dog above High School Musical. (laughs) And so, oh, I think I'm going to put this above the Shaggy Dog, because the Shaggy Dog is a very bad movie. But the Shaggy Dog has a dog driving a car. This movie has- Yeah, I know, but the rest of the Shaggy Dog is is worse than this film, as as bad as this movie For is. argument's sake, this movie could just be a dog wearing a goatee, and it could be Charlie Sheen. We'd never know. So if you thought, if you watched that movie that way- <laughs> So what you're saying is that this movie had a dog engaging yeah. in very bad sword yeah. fighting, which, look, the, from the point of view of a dog doing it, is very The impressive. dog's name was Chiffon. It was probably French, so it, it could have fit in. It would have spoke with a French accent better than any of the American actors. If you told me that, that Charlie Sheen's character was actually played by a dog, I would believe you. So you're actually making me put this higher. <laughs> you're, putting, you're making me put this higher, Bobby. Now that I'm imagining that a dog was doing all of Charlie Sheen's scenes. You 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 don't have to imagine. Charlie Sheen is not in this movie. Anyway, I think we're done. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of made it, guys. We kind of made it through in 90 minutes. I'm proud of us. This is going to be uh, – I, I don't think you're going to edit this one too much. Like, we – there's no fat to trim, really. Like, <laughs> Oh, you'll see. You'll it's going to be a – 45-minute episode. Sean, don't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no. It won't be. Um, we didn't actually cover it, but I do want to mention it. I do want to ask the question. Did you guys notice the weird Star Wars parallels? What was the weird Star Wars parallels in that final fight with uh, D'Artagnan and Michael Wincott or whatever? He does this Luke Skywalker jump over Michael Wincott. Uh-huh. He does have the high yeah. ground. And then Michael Wincott says, impressive, just like Darth Vader does in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, no, it is a direct reference. Bob Anderson did the sword fighting. He he did that. He he choreographed that fight scene. But then at the end of the fight, like they, they like shine a lantern on it as a joke or something because they make it look like Chris O'Donnell uses the force to summon his sword mm-hmm. and then kill Michael Wincott. And then they reveal afterwards that it was actually Julie Delpy throwing it to him which doesn't make any sense. But 
it's a weird joke because it's like, are we supposed to laugh because we're like, oh, he used the force in this French privateers yeah. movie. <laughs> and I mean, it's a direct, it's like, it's a, the reverse of my father died. He's like, you killed, I killed your father. It's not yeah. like I am your father. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, There's an implication. I killed your father. That, uh, his father's the one that took out his eye. Um, This is the same year as Hocus Pocus. So we've already covered uh, the movies that came out in 1993. So go listen to our Hocus Pocus episode because I don't have time to cover it here. I think that was uh, the reason why we're watching this, right? Is because we this movie came up during the Hocus Pocus episode, right? And I got excited because this cast genuinely excited me. And then I saw it and I was like, this, this is a genuine tragedy. This is a massive disappointment. Coming up next mm-hmm. week, audience, hopefully it'll be better. But you know what? I got a feeling it might be worse. Unidentified <laughs> Flying Oddball. Oh, right. Which apparently is the story of an astronaut and his robot being transported back in time to medieval England as an adaptation of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Astronaut what? and his robot. Okay. And his robot. Then didn't Disney later do a kid in King Arthur's court, which is just also a play on that? It's the first of two adaptations of Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. And, and actually, Kid in King Arthur's court had a sequel. A kid in Aladdin's palace? Man. Anyway. Um, it did? <laughs> did it start the guy from um, American Pie? Yeah, same kid. He did the sequel, too. It was directed oh, yeah? video, though. It was it was one of those directed ah. video sequels that they did. Same kid, though. Um, I watched a kid against Arthur's court this summer. <laughs> we were doing the podcast this summer. You just watched it for fun. <laughs> <laughs> so coming up next week, it might be that. It might be... Something else. It depends on what I edit first. But tune into that, people. And just to confirm that you tune in, we got to tell people to tune in. And I want to get Bobby to do it. And I want Bobby to do it in his best Chris O'Donnell impression. But Chris O'Donnell from this movie. So bad, 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 bad acting, Bobby. <laughs> but like not not do good, but do bad. But not act. But not act. But don't, don't act. But tune in next week to a podcast more tennis shoes. That had the smugness of someone who thinks they're a movie star, but is also turning in one of the worst performances I've ever seen. And Rob, can you, uh, Tim Curry us? I gotta do, it can be arranged. It's called the podcast What tennis shoes. And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks.